Hey everybody, this is Ben Kaznoka, co-founder and partner at Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is our podcast, where we go deep on all things business and technology with world-leading experts. Graham, you wrote a, um, a legendary essay, if I may say so, that we sent out to the folks on this call, the villagers who are joining in today. And in that essay, you analogize the difficulty of assessing a person as akin to seeing a window as both a window to see through and a mirror that can show your reflection. I thought that was such a fascinating image to think through. And it's just a, as, a, as an analogy, as a framework, the idea of a window is both a window to see through and it can also be a mirror that can show your reflection. Why is that analogy at the essence of this topic for you? I think because over time, I started to realize how much I was creating the interaction I was in. And for a long time, I didn't see that. And so I feel like we all show up differently in different contexts. So the example I use in there is like, I think I used to hold my breath while I was speaking or if I was nervous in a conversation. And I noticed over time that that could cause the other person to hold their breath. And then I would experience them as nervous, but I had created that. And, and then I was starting to think, what else is like that? I was actually reading uh, Scott Alexander. He makes a very similar point. I was just, he says, a few years ago, I had lunch with another psychiatrist in training and realized we had totally different experiences with psychotherapy. We both got the same types of cases. We were both practicing the same kinds of therapy. We were both in the same training program, same teachers, but our experiences were totally different. In particular, all her patients had dramatic emotional meltdowns, and all my patients gave calm and considered analyses of their problem, as if they were lecturing on a particularly boring episode from 19th century Norwegian history. There's something I'm doing, totally by accident, to produce those results. This is worrying, not just as a psychiatrist, but as someone who wants to know about other people at all. I was going to add that to my piece, because that's exactly the point I was trying to make. People, you're creating your field, and so you, you want to be as self-aware as possible of how you're doing that. Otherwise, you're just going to see what you're predisposed to see was the point I was trying to make. Gotcha. So is that another way of talking about cognitive bias and the degree to which we wear blinders? We don't see the world clearly by default, something um, you know, Robert Wright and lots of other folks have written about. And so yeah. know that yeah. as you interview a candidate, as you evaluate a GP, as you evaluate a founder, you have blinders on and you need to be self-aware of how that affects your analysis. Yeah. It's entering a certain mood. Like I reread that piece I wrote, I kind of wrote it for myself to consolidate what I've learned, but then also it's, I'm trying to capture a mood when I'm in the zone of like just how complex it is and that I, how complex the system it is and how I'm changing the system. And I, I feel like the optimal mood is you're kind of open-minded with a very small point of view. Like it's like, okay, I've developed a point of view on this person, either in the interview or in the, in the reference check. But I'm, I'm just holding like that point of view so like my grip is so light on it and I'll let something new they say or something the reference giver says rip my view out of my hand very easily. So I feel like it's for me, it works to think of it as a mood. And am I in the right mood to do this or not? I, I mean, that is that's a really an original and very interesting way to think about this. I'm not sure I've ever in all that I've read about talent and, and, and hiring and interviewing, the idea that the mood of the interviewer is of profound consequence 
is just a really interesting idea. And I actually think in your essay, Graham, you, you meant you have some reference to like, am I, am I still enough or quiet enough to see what's actually happening? And, you know, you, yeah. you think about all of the interviews and talent evaluations that are done, you know, in the middle of a super hectic day as you're running from one call to the other and you've squeezed in the 20 minute reference check, you know, in between two other things and you show up kind of in a frenzy. I mean, it's probably very hard to, to sort of quantify just the ways in which your biases and so forth are going to distort your view and how you're not going to be, I guess, still enough to recognize that. Yeah, I, th- I see it again. Is it, I don't want to overclaim how often I achieve this state, but when I'm in it, it's like a form of mindfulness and you're paying attention to what the other person is saying because you haven't made up your mind. So you're constantly like, oh, what? Maybe it's the opposite. Oh, this is actually directly contradicts my working hypothesis on whether they're high conscientious or low conscientious. Or, and just by, I make my, because I have mild ADHD the way maybe everybody does now. And I try to stay, you know, stay in it and not resist the urge to make up my mind and move on to the next thing. So, so Graham, you say that references are not something that you should do to confirm your decision after an interview with a candidate, say, but are indeed the whole thing. References are the whole thing. What do most people get wrong in business when doing reference checks? But I think one thing to do is whenever you're in the position to be giving a reference, notice all the dynamics as somebody's asking you questions on a reference, because it really helps you realize the incentives. And so my my takeaway of the incentives are it's like most reference givers, particularly obviously the ones on some a candidate's official list, have are balancing this intention. Like they they want to help their friend or former employee or whatever, but then they also don't want to lie. And so I, I've been on the receiving end of a reference a couple of times where I, where I was giving a reference and I was trying to squirm out of um, you know, basically giving somebody a five or a six on a 10 point scale, but I didn't want to say that. And there was one guy I remember who um, became a close friend after this, who just sat on me for like an hour and was just like, like blah, 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 blah. and it got so exhausting. And I just gave up like, okay, I, I gave up like, I don't know, 35 minutes in. So I think, I think one thing is stamina. Like I'm going to, stay with this as long as it takes to get in sync on this. And that, that reminds me of a few remember, good, that reminds me, Graham, of a few good men. You can't handle the truth. Like just the relentless, like right. fine. I'll yes, I ordered the code red. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's that it's that kind of vibe. I remember I, I was on this really long um getting the reference from a guy I I knew somewhat. He was a he was a friend and he was a portfolio manager in a fund. He was talking about another portfolio manager. I did like, I don't know, 30 minutes. I was on my cell phone in a car. It wasn't optimal. And I was pretty sure he was giving, um, in effect, uh, a ringing endorsement. And then I, just before I hung up, I asked one last question. And his, I don't remember what I asked, but it was something like trying to make more room one more time for more room. And he said, Graham, I want to be fair to you. And I want to be fair to Joe. And I was like, oh, my God, the last 35 minutes I've had, I have to reevaluate everything he said over the last 35 minutes. Because what he's saying, what I interpreted that to be is, oh, why would he want to be fair to the other guy and me? Oh, fuck. Like everything, 
I've been listening. This entire story I came up with was false. And so there's like just hanging in it longer than feels comfortable um, is one thing people get wrong. And then, yeah, go ahead. Okay, so, so, so one of the practical takeaways is a, the ideal reference check phone call or video chat should be longer than you might think because people, if they're going to lie or half lie or evade, they might get worn down even as you ask the same question in 20 different ways. And so the 19th and 20th time you ask the question might actually arrive at the truth and you need, what, 45 minutes, an hour uh, to let that unfold. Yeah, and, but again, back to the mood, like I, I think it's really important to not end up with, like, I think on that, that reference call I was just thinking of, I didn't have a gotcha vibe, I had a curiosity vibe. And I feel like the gotcha vibe closes them, I know it closes me, down when I'm the receiving end of it. So if if you can convey, I'm genuinely curious about this person and I do not want to put them into a situation that's not good for them, like I don't want to hire them and fire them, I don't want to blah, 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 then I think the other person tends to respond to that as, look, everybody's a mess. Everybody's got, everybody's complicated. Everybody's container is very different than, you know, one container is very different than another container. And so how do you how do we help this person find the right, is this the right thing or not? And, and that curiosity gives, A, gives you stamina, but also changes the interaction with the, um, with the reference giver, I think. Well, and, I, and, I, and so one of the things you mentioned there is that you don't want the reference receiver to sort of close down too quickly. And is what would follow from that belief that it's helpful in a reference call to start with a few questions that you know are going to easy positives, get some positive vibes out. If you assume this is an on-book reference where the person wants to say something positive, let like start with that so they can feel like they checked the box before you get to some of the edgier questions. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, like pacing it a little bit um, and establishing rapport and making it safe, you know, making it clear that you're not going to convey any of this. Yeah. So, so do you ask references to rate the candidate or the GP or whatever the context is, the founder to rate this person like on a scale of one to 10? And and how do you, what is the scale that you use? And then how do you avoid the classic, oh, this person's a seven? I do often ask them, it depends on the context, what the scale is. Um, sometimes if it were in the context of picking a GP, it would be something or a portfolio manager, it would be um you know, who I try to calibrate their sample size first. So who's the most commercial person you've ever met? Okay, let's call them a 10. What's this person? And then if that's not relevant because the person they used was too senior, okay, let's calibrate it on somebody who's at this level, uh, you know, this stage of the career. So you want to calibrate it. And then, yeah, I I try to have them avoid sevens, say sevens aren't allowed because that's by far, you know, it's 70% of the answers are sevens. Um, and let them kind of agonize on eight or six on a given thing. And then and then I really like following up. Okay, so you said eight. Okay, so what's in that two points? Like where could they, if, if you're gonna coach me on coaching them to take their game up, what's in the two points? And then like keep going on that for a while because they've already cleared the space with I just gave them an eight. Okay, so these two points are areas for improvement. Like what's in that? Um yeah. Is it ever the case that some people just by disposition or belief would never give a nine or a 10? Just like they, they're the kind of person yeah. that says, those, those ratings are reserved for, you know, Steve Jobs himself. 
So yeah. this eight, eight is as good as it gets in my book. Like, is that a dynamic? Yeah, hundred percent. And yeah, it's, I mean, one of the art forms of this, of course, is controlling for the context of the reference giver and thinking, would I ever work for them? Are they like crazy? Are they like, how, how much overlap in their map of, does their map of reality have with mine? Because if it's low overlap, they could be right and I could be wrong, but it's not going to be that useful for me. So, um, and that's why doing a bunch helps because then you're holding each one. Like I, I've made mistakes before where I overweighted one reference. And I, I remember asking this this one um, during the uh, great financial crisis, there was a guy who was, wanted to set up a fund to do the subprime short. And I talked to his former boss and the boss in retrospect had some sort of agenda. And when I asked some version of the percentage question, he said, oh yeah, he's uh top 50% of any analyst that's ever worked for me, which like what? Like that's totally at odds with everything the candidate had said. And then it turned out later he had an agenda and the other references were po- were super positive and more nuanced, but I overweighted that one and didn't end up um, seating the guy. And it was, a, I mean, there are a lot of factors, but it, it feels like a mistake by outcome and by process. So you just wanna weight each one, even on book references can have negative agendas themselves that the candidate doesn't know. And you're just trying to hold it all simultaneously and then say, nah, I don't know. It comes out here is what I think. Well, one thing I want to make sure people didn't miss in, in a, set, a thing you said a minute ago, because I think it's important is to calibrate the one through 10 scale. Um, some, some villagers know that when we've done sessions on oral communication uh, at some of our founder retreats, we've, talked about doing one through 10 body pulls with people. And I, I learned from a coach that I hired on this topic that you always need to define 10, like hold up 10 fingers, you know, scale one to 10, you have to define what 10 means. And sometimes like, for example, if, if I'll ask a group, you know, one through 10, how talented are you at oral communication something like that? Just to make the point, I'll define 10 as uh, like Tony Robbins or someone who I know no one would put 10 <laughs> fingers up. Because then, then you create an opportunity to say, great, the objective of this session is to go from seven to eight or go from eight to nine or nine to 10 because nobody in the room is going to put up 10. But yeah. I, I've always remembered the importance of defining 10 and then defining one. And yeah. it's and what's interesting in your framework here, Graham, is you basically asked, so you're asking the reference giver on a scale of one to 10, 10 being the best, who is the best person you've ever worked with in this role? So you're not you're not picking like Mark Zuckerberg or some famous external person. You're asking in their reality, who is yeah. a 10? And then yeah. you're asking them to compare the current candidate against that. Yeah, exactly. And, and hopefully I know, like ideally, I know who they pick, but if I don't, that's okay too. And then I make a note to go back and try to figure out. But yeah, I, I would say the advantage of having a big sample of something, product managers, CTOs, in my case, my massive sample is hedge fund analysts and portfolio managers, is over time, like you get to you get to know that sample and talent tends to clump. Like the, the 72s tend to interact with 78s to 71s. And in fact, I remember one time I, I looked at a reference list and I, I had met with all 15 people on the reference list and I thought they were all fine, but not not extraordinary. So let's call them all in the high 80s. And and it, and then I had to hold that view of maybe the candidate is just, hang, you know, is, is not hanging out the the peer level that represents himself. But but in general, kind of Google page rank of um, people tend, 
tend to interact with other people ish at their competence and talent level is one heuristic I have in mind. The one thing I want to circle back to, the other thing I feel like is really hard to do on references that people make mistakes on is the dog that doesn't bark. You have to remember what a really good reference sounds like and and the emotion of that and the vocal intonation of that and and then the content of that and tell yourself, am I hearing that? Because yeah, that that's super high signal, I think. And so- um yeah, so I think that's that's really important. Yeah, like the the the, the knowing what enthusiasm sounds like. This is where there is a compounding yeah. advantage. We think about this at Village when because we reference so many founders every week, and and so you get this pattern recognition on what does real enthusiasm sound like. And then I think I also just I want to pull out this other takeaway, Graham. You're almost saying that who who someone lists as their on-book references is itself signal as to the yeah. caliber of their peer group, and yeah. and talented people exactly. tend to obsess with the people they hang out with. <laughs> so that's yeah, in and of yeah. itself a signal. And just another question from a founder, Nithin, that came in. How many references do you actually usually conduct? You just mentioned a list of 15, but in a, and I know it's hard to generalize different sorts of contexts, whatever, but just like, is there some minimum number of references that, that counts as a serious reference check process for you? I mean, sometimes I'll be lazy after five. I try to hold myself to 10. 10 is a lot, obviously, it's a lot of time. I feel like there, sometimes you get to what I think of as like the Yoda reference where you have the sense they're like, they're being super candid with you and they're balanced and nuanced and they, they worked with the person for a long time. And then I feel like you, I give myself permission, like, okay, I think I got it now. But if that was on the first one, I'd still do the next four, the next nine, somewhere in that zip code. And then, yeah. And, and allow, you know, allowing, if, if you don't, if you aren't at the point where you, you can kind of simulate in your head what the downside of being with them is like of working with them. Then, then I try to keep going. Cause if I only know the upsides and I'm not in tune with the downsides or the reverse, like that's one check I have in mind. Oh, I got to keep going. Cause I don't quite get it yet. Okay. So that's a, that's a, um, that's a profound point. And I just want to make, I'm just processing it myself, which is, you know, you're, you haven't done a thorough enough reference check process if you can't imagine in some concrete detail what the downside of working with this person is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a little bit like like one of the questions I like in an interview. Like In an interview, one frame is, I'm trying to get to know you well enough that I, I'm qualified to do reference checks on you. And one interview question I like is, um, how would your spouse describe you with 10 adjectives? But, which is a pretty aggressive question. I do it at the beginning. Some percentage of the time it backfires and they say, fuck off. But if they don't, then it like creates a, a nice dynamic. But what I really am curious in about is like, in what way specifically does your spouse find you to be a pain in the ass? Because that captures, you know, that captures the downside of the things I'm appreciating about you. And that then you can kind of see somebody holistically and less on a pedestal and, and more as the messy. Do you, um, and by the way, do you think it's do you think it's best to say spouse? Would you say yeah, no, colleagues? yeah. I try to read the dynamic. If they have a spouse, I use spouse, and it feels okay. But some t- percentage of the time, yeah, I say colleague or Josh Hanna, who just submitted a question, wrote a great article on uh, extreme referencing. I think it's probably ten to fifteen years old, but we'll put a link in for people oh. to check that out. Uh, because it's, it's, it's it sort of your comment, Graham, on five to 10 references 
is, uh, you know, a, probably a, a larger number than many people think. A lot of people do like the two to three references. And so, you know, Josh makes the point in his essay, you need to do a lot. You need to spend a lot more time doing this if you're going to do it well and do it thoroughly. Um, yeah. So just to, as a shout out to that essay. But one thing, Graham, you just said a minute ago that I think is a good transition. Let's talk about interviewing, interviewing founders, GPs, whatever, is you said in your essay and just now you said the mission of an interview is 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 primarily to get to know the person well enough to do effective reference checks, right? So so a lot of people think interviewing is the thing, and your argument is no no reference checking is the thing, and interviewing helps you be a better reference checker. Is it? You feel free to elaborate on that, but also is it fair then to say that if you had to pick, if you're trying to evaluate the prospect of working with someone, investing in someone, you had to pick between interviewing them or reference checking them, you'd pick reference checking. I think that's right. Like it seems a little radical to say out loud. And if I were doing it, I don't think I've ever actually done it. I haven't actually done it. I've been tempted to try it. But I think I do think having this basic humility about how much I can get out in a 45 minute or even two hour thing. You know, if somebody's earlier in their career, then the references may not be as useful. Um, so then in that context, maybe you'd want, I'd choose in-person interview. But if somebody is built up you know, it's played a repeat iteration game on a pl given playing field. And there've been other players who watched them do it. I just find their perspective, like I'm confident enough in my, in my ability to hold the reference givers perspective, like loosely, and then grab 10 of them that I, yeah, I would prefer that over, uh, I think somebody wrote an essay to this effect. Um, Kevin Ryan, uh, the double click guy, Kevin, um, has a piece, he's he's very into the Jeff Smart who methodology. And, um, but he was saying if he could just, if he only had one, he would he would choose references. And, and I remember reading that thinking, oh yeah, I'm exactly the same way. Well, so, so my take, you can tell me what you think, is that if I had to pick and it was a reference person who I knew well and had a trust relationship, I would pick yeah. that over the interview. If I did not know the reference person well, I would pick an interview yeah. because sort of my frame of reference is the, one of the objectives here is your ability to detect deception, to detect spin yeah. and try to access truth. And yeah. talking to a stranger, basically, as a reference about yeah. the target candidate, it's like one degree removed. And so you're trying to like detect spin like as it like bounces off the backboard into like, you know, it's like it seems harder. And so I'd rather actually just sit with a candidate and say, I know you're going to sell. <laughs> I know you're, you, you might be trying to spin to some degree, but I have more confidence in my ability to actually get the truth in that interaction. So uh, agree, disagree, what do you think? But yeah, in your frame, I'd agree. But if I gave you 30 references and they all had experience with a candidate and you have infinite time, and I compare that to the just the one interview and you don't know any of the 30, I personally would take the 30 if I have the time. And there's also a, a trade-off at a certain point here. It gets ridiculous. But it, I feel like that in that setup, if it were just one reference and I didn't know them versus interview, sure, I'll take an interview most of the time. But if if it's like if I can aggregate a mosaic based on all these people who have so many more hours with this person than I will, I think I'll take that. I, and I think one of the really good takeaways here is like if you're interviewing or trying to evaluate someone who's younger, fewer years of work experience, you're likely need to get really, really good at interviewing. <laughs> Because yeah. the reference book just isn't going to be very deep, yeah. but if you're talking to for the GPs on the line here, if you're if you're talking to a founder who's a bit older, 
you're trying to hire an executive into your company who's a bit older, if you're an LP allocated into a GP who's a bit older, you have to be really good at referencing and probably referencing is going to be the most helpful. So I do think that the age of the target person is a huge factor on this on this vector. Yeah, I agree with that. One thing, uh, Graham, you say in your essay, I would love for you to elaborate on is, is you, you talked about the difference between uh, espoused theory, which is what someone says when they're being interviewed versus their theory and use, the mental models that actually drive their actions in daily life. Is this touching on sort of my, my word deception, which has a, is a bit hard edged, I suppose, but just this idea that actions speak louder than words and people have stories about themselves and the objective in an interview is to cut through all that? Yeah, I think it would, we could use the word deception, but it's, sometimes I feel like people are deceiving themselves. So it's like, it's like <laughs> I, got, I got a cold plunge two weeks ago and I've been gingerly working my way into doing it. And if I were in an interview context and I were younger, and I gave a shit that I might be tempted to say, yeah, I do a cold plunge every morning because I'm, I'm like leaning into it. I aspire to do a cold plunge every morning. The reality is I've done like two in the last week. And each time I'm like, fuck, why did I do this? But my espouse theory, like I do genuinely believe that at some point I'll be doing a cold plunge every morning and I'll just kind of lean into it a little bit. And so I kind of feel like that's fair enough. But so you want to control the, the image that Jonathan Haidt has that I like so much is, um, that came to him apparently in the midst of a psychedelic trip is of a, we're all people riding elephants. And I like that image because then it's like the rider is not always a reliable witness or reliable narrator. And sometimes there it's like conscious deception, but sometimes it's unconscious deception and they're saying what the rider wants, but then the elephant is just going to do whatever the hell the elephant wants to do over time. You know, they got to wander over and eat the grass on that side of the field. And so just hold, you know, taking people only semi-seriously about as witnesses about themselves, I feel like is a good back to the mood. It's like a good vibe to be in. Yeah. And um, I'm going to, because we have limited time, I'm not going to go on a, on a little side channel on, uh, on cold plunges, but I will refer people to my blog and other areas where I've written about <laughs> cold plunging, the value of cold showers and sauna. So we'll just put a, a pin in that, Graham, but we should, we'll talk offline about your cold plunging. What among high talent people, high accomplished people, what's one of the more common areas where self-deception occurs? Whereas you're an interviewer, you want to be sure to really question, a, you know, stated narrative. Um, well, I would say this is like an adjacent point, but it's like when people start using jargon or cliches. So it would be like if somebody was using a cliche about the way they work, that that like gets my attention of like, oh, maybe that's maybe that's just they're just trying that on or they don't fully own it. And, um, or when somebody, when people use a lot of jargon, like I, I think one super tricky thing is when somebody's coming from a big company into a small company, how do you control for that and whether they can hop containers and realities in that way? And um, Ben Katash Rao has this piece, I forget what it's called, maybe the Gervais effect. And it's an analysis of the show, The Office. I don't know if you've read it. But he's talking about how there are these layers, and he calls the guys in the Daryl and the people in the warehouse the the losers, and by that he means economic losers. And then um, Steve Carell is um, in that category, he calls the clueless. And then the top Jan and um, Michael, et cetera, not Michael. Um, uh, anyway, the corporate is, is in. Um, he calls them the sociopaths. 
And his argument is that the sociopaths and the losers are the only ones in touch with reality. I feel like if you're interviewing anybody in that middle layer, it's really hard. They, they tend to use a lot of jargon and it's really hard to figure out where, whether their reality, that they, they've been living in this, in Steve Jobs' world or in Jeff Bezos' world. If you take them out of that into another reality, it's not, cl- I find it really hard to gauge whether it's going to work or not. Um, it may, it maybe there are transitions between certain firms that work better than others. Um, but as we get older and we've been somewhere longer, like the way our reality works, it just gets so much more specific to that domain. And then you get out of it. And so I'm always nervous about like, I'm constantly paranoid. I'm missing something. Like I use a word in, in my world, like value investing um, or growth or some, some piece of thing that I, I have a meaning for. And actually maybe they just have a completely different um, or people are always in, in investment world, <laughs> always complaining about their former boss traded too much or blah, blah, blah. And, but the different time frames for what constitutes investing versus trading is very different container by container. And so, um, yeah, yeah, well, first of all, we'll uh, definitely one of the, we'll see what is the most quotable sentence of this conversation, but, uh, the sociopaths and the losers are most in touch with reality. Is, is in the running right now, Graham, for a top three. We'll see if it ends up as number one. But no, that's that's that's, that's quite interesting. I mean, I guess uh, you're, you're touching on a theme we really don't have time to get into today, but it's a topic about which there's considerable research, which is just how context-specific high performance is and, that, and expertise for that matter. One thing Tyler Cowen has, has said many years ago um, uh, is expertise is incredibly context-specific and what have sort of these are now my words, not Tyler's, but one of the like modern plagues of the media culture is just how many experts in one domain get sought after for their opinion on things that they don't know actually a lot about. Um, but we, we think yeah. sort of the high IQ brain can riff uh, with equal insight across a, a whole set of topics and that, that just ain't so. Um, so I think it's a, it's a well put, I think, at least when evaluating GPs spitting out of big firms, that's an obvious question. Or as for the founders on the call here, you're hiring someone who, you know, crushed it at Google, but now you're trying to bring them into your, you know, 14 person startup. Um, what is that going to look like? So that the transfer of context is a, is a huge area of risk that we should all uh, be paying attention to. I want to switch to a different question, but do you want to react to any of that, Graham? I was just thinking, of, I was speaking with somebody who is very senior at Yahoo years ago, and they kept hiring people from Google and they would never work. And his theory became that like Google employees for the most part are, you know, are operating with this massive tailwind of how dominant in search they are. And so anything they tell you, they're not, they're not able to calibrate. And that often happens like somebody leaves Goldman and they think they get their phone calls returned because it's them. But it, it's very hard if you're in that seat to correctly weight the fact that somebody's tr- calling you back because you're at Goldman and you have Goldman's balance sheet and reputation and everything behind you and so i think like that's one thing we each as individuals are subject to is not weighting that correctly and if you're doing references or hiring you want to try to weight it for the person so let's talk about specific interview questions uh that you think are really resonant and before we get to your top list i want to run by you a question that just came up i was just in a taxi a couple hours ago with uh, my colleague and Duane and uh, our portfolio ceos vincenzo Ayozo and charmaine and we were all just talking about the following question, which is apparently the CEO of a major 
publicly traded tech company today asks candidates the following question. Do you care most about winning? Are you obsessed with winning? Or are you obsessed with not losing? And he will not hire people who are obsessed with winning. He wants people who are terrified of losing. (laughs) I'm curious to start, what do you think of that question and that framework? And then what are other questions you like uh, better or the same? Yeah, um, that particular one, I, I personally, that, that question doesn't resonate with me. It, it, I can picture in his or her domain, there's a theorist who says, your job as a leader is to define reality for people on the way in and then thank them on the way out. And so that could be part of his defining reality for people on the way in, and that's useful for him in that context. I find that super sports specific. So there, there are a set said Michael Jordan in an interview, somebody in an interview was talking about how their whole thing is not losing. Um, And I think there are a lot of Olympic swimmers that um, maybe in the Stanford swim auditorium or something, you know, there's a thing that is referencing basically not losing. I was a competitive athlete. I thought about it that way sometimes, but then sometimes I didn't. So yeah, that particular question. But I I think if it's, if it's coherent with your, with your world, it, it can make sense. It can also be noisy. I can picture yeah. it works better with certain types of athletes or something. What, what, what's yeah, your well, take think, on it? I'm curious. Well, I think it's two, two things, but I think that's a good comment. One, just plus one. Like I actually think part of what you do when you're interviewing people to join your company, you're already setting in place the culture, right? You, yeah, the, exactly. it, it, it's, it's the first time that the potential employee starts to hear about the values. And so you're totally right. Yeah. Like there's actually a, in the same way that like Robin Hansen says, you know, when you go to the doctor, only 5% of the visits about medicine or about the actual medical process and 95% is about being heard and feeling better. You know, like medicine is right. not about medicine, I think is his line, or healthcare is not about healthcare. Similarly, like you could argue, and by analogy, I'm being a bit extreme here for effect, but like, you know, interview questions are only somewhat about evaluating talent. And a lot of it is like preparing them for their onboarding. <laughs> and and so in that yeah. sense, the win versus not to lose thing is is potentially interesting. But I also think what, what that question gets at, in, in Silicon Valley, this is a you know, uh, or the VC Josh Wolf has this line, you know, um, uh, chip on your shoulder is chips in your pocket. Like if you have a chip on your shoulder or another VC I know who will remain nameless, you know, says he likes to back founders with daddy issues, sort of the, I weren't, wasn't loved enough. I'm insecure. I'm completely obsessed. I'm driven. That's what a great tech founder looks like. Like I, I do think there's a school of thought that prizes yeah. that. And I think looking for employees that are terrified of losing kind of is in that tradition. Uh, and I guess, you know, it could work for certain companies. Yeah, yeah. In terms of questions, like one meta one I use all the time is if you were hiring somebody to fill this role, what criteria would you use? I really like that because it, I feel like as much as possible, particularly upfront, you want to not load things, not pre-frame things at all and let them generate the frame. And so people will answer that question at the most technical level and at the most abstract level or both. or any, And it lets you know, I feel like if somebody's particularly good at a thing, they try to capture what makes them good at it in the way they answer. So um, coding architecture is actually really all about blah, blah, blah. Or like they'll, they'll someone who understands that blah, blah, blah. Or yeah, I, I, that's 
my favorite. If I could only have one, I'd probably use that. And then, and then and I so, use so the, how go, you... Let's pause there for a sec because I think that's a great one. I want to make sure everyone hears that and that that point lands. And one of the, and just so just to amplify, like I think one of the great parts about the question, you know, if you were hiring for this role, what criteria would you hold? Not only do you, not only is it kind of a backdoor way of of accessing insight, kind of reminds me of the old line in you know venture, which is like ask for money, you get advice; ask for advice, you get money. Like sometimes you have to go indirect to get to the truth. But also, what I like about the question, Graham, is it can reveal just very at a more prosaic level, like how well do they understand the company? Have they done their research? Do they know what you're looking for? Do they know what the role is? Like you, you, you can't give a generic interview answer. You, I, the best answer, I assume, okay. has is a lot informed by what the role actually demands, right? What the company is looking for. And so it kind of also just tests for basic preparedness. Yeah. But I, I try to, um, I guess there'd be a version of asking it where you're checking how much they prepared. I'm more interested in um, keeping it cleaner, usually at least at the, in the first round of it. I, I tend to get at company specific stuff in other ways. Like I just, I want them not to fit it to me. I want them to say if, what they truly think excellence is, and how do they? Um, I'm trying to think of an example. So I was I was interviewing this person who came out of a large credit fund, and I asked him this question, and he gave this answer that as he he said, well, I've been thinking about this because I was just replacing myself and I was interviewing people, and I actually think you need somebody who has both the ability to invest in RMBS and CMBS, and. RMBS being a more statistical, like pool-based mindset, and CMBS meaning an asset-specific, like ability to underwrite a, a specific building or something like that. And I never thought of it that way. But once he said that, like I realized of all the credit people I met, they were usually one or the other. They were usually there were some people who were super comfortable just investing on the basis of statistics, and there were some who were just like very into a specific deal and couldn't really hold the mentality of investing, you know, using statistics. So it, and it made me realize, oh, this person actually does have both. And, but then also from then on, it improved my own criteria list. So if you're going to interview a lot in a given area, um, that's one. Yeah. And then trying to think, uh, the, the, the number of adjectives. Um, yeah. So you have the, how would, how would your spouse Describe you with ten adjectives: a sibling, colleague, etc. Yeah, You've talked about what yeah. what criteria would you use for hiring for this role? Um, you also, I saw, I saw uh, in your essay, you mentioned the question: you know, what are you compulsive about? Yeah, is the question. You like that one? I like that if if it's the right vibe, um, because often they'll shift, and it gets out a little bit more the elephant side. Like what? So if there's something specific they do that they feel a little bit guilty about because it's slightly pleasurable or it's a little tactical or um, it just seems a little ra not radical, but like, um, I don't know, just out of the ordinary. Um, yeah, that can sometimes open up. Um, but in general, and then at a certain point, I like to, if I can, move to them asking me questions. And the, the trick, it's super hard. Like you got to practice because the real danger of that is depending on how much time you have, if you give a real answer to each question, you won't get enough. Um, so sometimes so I'll what, ask What it, are you looking yeah. for? Why, why do you say, I saw that. I'm so intrigued to learn more about why you think it's, what What do you learn 
when you let the candidate ask you questions? Again, it's like you're, I have this zooming out, like my friend Josh calls me a wild gardener. Like I don't, I'm not very good at having somebody do a thing they don't want to do. I just want them to want to do it anyway. I'm constantly trying to not give them a frame. And I feel like questions, you're not giving them a frame. So they could be interested in something that you would not have anticipated they're interested in. But but the main, yeah, the main value is just the feeling of, do they have a hungry mind? And are they kind of, um, I think of it as like, whatever, a non, an NPC, like somebody who's awake and not on script. Are they, like, how does it feel to be, um, grilled by them and what are they actually interested about? And, you know, depending on how old they are and how formal the setting, you actually won't get that in the first three questions. But then after that, either it'll start to be, you know, alive or it won't. Um, but do you, do you try to, do you try to, cause this is a good, I was interviewing someone recently where, you know, we had 15 minutes left in the interview. I said to the person, do you have any questions for me? They asked a question at that point, just tactically, is it best for it to be a fluid conversation for the rest of the interview? Or do you want it to be question and answer where like I answer and then I just shut up and let them ask the next question? Like is sort of the, is the structure of Q and A ideal or do you want to get into authentic conversation? Yeah, I don't have a, 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 I would do it context specific and what it felt like, but I would have a slight bias toward getting more, like writing as many questions that they ask down as possible as quickly as possible. So if I have 15 minutes left, I'd like answer their first one and, and write it down and then, or ask why, I'm curious, why are you curious about that? And then try to like get at what's underlying. And just because if it, it there's some chance it's it's a forced setting and, or they're not on their game and you don't want to overweight it. But, but, if it, but if you are asked a bunch of insightful, hungry mind, curious questions right in a row, it's, I find that super high signal, and it, but it's hard to create the space for it. Yeah. Yeah, and I'll quote, um, I'll quote, I'll quote your own words, Graham. You say, "quote During interviews, I try to create a stillness that helps se- separate signal from noise, elephants from riders. The easiest way to con- to create conditions of stillness is to talk very little." Yeah. Yeah, and it's hard. Um, some people aren't that comfortable. Like I, I initially wasn't that comfortable with silence. I'm still not, but I work on silence management and just let, you know, so like yesterday I asked somebody, how would you rate your partnership? There's two partners. How would you rate your partnership on a one to hundred? And the guy did not feel comfortable answering the question. He reframed it, but I was trying to just leave space for whatever he was willing to convey in that context. And, and the only, and the only ch- question I have is not really a challenge, but like, so I love this idea of stillness and, and, and it's, it's often advice given to people who do political fundraising or any sort of fundraising, like make the ask and shut the fuck up and, 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 and let them sit in the silence and you'll probably more likely get a yes. But at the same time, like the stillness, the question, the pause, that's not natural conversation, right? Like in terms of how you actually work with people in real life, or I'll say, speak for myself, how I work with people is it's conversation. It's back and forth. You're going, you know, and, and so yeah. in interviews, what I'm trying to do is simulate what it would be like to work with a person and the way it would be like yeah. the real world is I'm making comments, they're riffing, reacting, and you kind of move away from the structured interview uh, process. Thoughts on that? Yeah. 
Well, the image I have in my head is, I don't know if you ever watched Charlie Rose, people on the call may be too young to have watched him, but like he was such a good interviewer on the one hand, on the other hand, he would talk way too much. And sometimes like, and so I always like, am I sure I'm not being Charlie Rose in this context and putting this thing and being my enthusiasm for the candidate or for my company or for the thing, blah, blah, blah. Am I sure I'm not like just entertaining myself here? I just, it depends how much time you have, depends where your natural setting is. But I think probably most people could benefit from allowing themselves and the other person to be slightly uncomfortable and doing a little more of something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'll, I'll just, on the Charlie Rose thing, I'll just say, I do, I do think he was overrated as, as an interviewer. I always remember, <laughs> I, once had, I once had the opportunity to sit next to Christopher Hitchens. He said, the great thing about Charlie Rose is you never know what he's going to ask next and neither does he. Uh, but so now, Graham, we have just six minutes left and I want to sort of wrap it up. But before we get to sort of wrap up and tie a bow and try to summarize some of the takeaways, because it's such a rich and dense conversation here, I want to give you an opportunity to take two minutes to, to describe a topic that you could spend literally 200 hours probably talking about, which is personality tests, personality assessments, Enneagram and the like. So in the context of interviewing and reference checking and sizing up talent, how helpful is it? to try to fit somebody into a personality framework or any one of the five or six frameworks that I know you use in your everyday life? Like as you're interviewing, as referencing, are you trying to yourself say, is this an Enneagram three, two, Myers-Briggs type, whatever? Or is that is that conflating? Is that a different way to think about talent, but not in the interview or reference check process? No, I, I, um, I was actually talking with um, a hedge fund manager who runs a huge activist fund. And bizarrely, he's very into the Enneagram. And he was describing how when he's sitting with a CEO, he's um, he experiences as a, as a form of mindfulness to kind of what I was referring to earlier, um, to try to figure out, to hold what type are they. And you could do that on the big five ocean. You could do that with Myers-Briggs. I mean, Myers-Briggs, I find, is more controversial and is a little lightweight, but I still find it useful. I find the S component of my Myers-Briggs particularly useful versus N. The sensing is somebody super concrete and literal and linear versus are they more abstract? But uh, yeah, if I'm interviewing somebody or doing references, I am trying to hold Enneagram, which I like because it's got the positives right next to the negatives on each one. It takes a pretty big investment of time before it seems slightly less astrological than it does at first. And I was super hesitant to start using it. I, I learned about it probably five years before I started saying, wow, I actually do see these patterns a lot and I find them useful. It also has a personal development and spiritual growth component to it in a way that I like and makes it not seem, I don't know, it seems richer and like it's got more trajectory to it. Um, so I use Enneagram, I'll use Big Five, is it ever appropriate to ask a candidate or ask a reference check, uh, hey, which Enneagram type you think this person is? Or like, will you just ask it straight up? I will sometimes, yeah. Or if like if they somebody's worked at Bridgewater or McKinsey or somewhere where you know they're, um, they have like a ton of um, psychometrics, I'll ask them, so what, you know, what, what did your baseball card at Bridgewater say? Or if you know the, the framework that they use at the prior place, it's a way to like get in sync very efficiently. I mean, so ideally let, they'd send it to you, but. So let's wrap up. I want to get a few quick, just quick questions, quick answers from some of the questions that have come in from folks who are on the call, um, Graham. So first, 
when you're when you're doing the uh, an extended reference check, 30, 45 minute call, et cetera, has it ever backfired where the reference person says, wow, you're just kind of annoying. This is way over the top. And you kind of they go back the candidate and say, this person seems weird, like you overdid it. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I've done a couple of times when I've gotten too negative or loaded it in some way. I, I used to forget what percentage of the time, obviously on the on list ones, some percentage of it's going to get back. But you have to be a little bit careful about that. Um, I, I asked the, uh, the former boss of a guy I was thinking of seeding his hedge fund. And the guy, the former boss was pounding the table. I said, so I said, uh, well, why don't you seat him? And the guy paused and he said, you know what? I think I might. And then he proceeded to give him 20 million bucks. And I was like, ah, <laughs> I, I, I wanted to participate in that. So you can, but that's pretty rare. Like, um, yeah, it, but it does, um, yeah. you, you can, you are affecting the Heisenberg principle. Like you are affecting the thing. Right. So you have to be mindful of that for sure. Yes. Yeah. And then Craig Brody asks, um, you're spending a ton of time doing reference checks, maybe even more than interviews. Have you ever conducted reference checks before interviews? Um, a handful of times. Yeah. Um, but you just like, did I do it sometimes to decide whether to take the meeting or not. And that, yeah, that's super useful and can be efficient. I, I think it's good on, to select whether you want to take the meeting in the first place. And then if you, if you have somebody in common, then you can kind of start three clicks in ideally um, in the interview. Yeah. So um, the, we're, we're basically out of time, Graham. Really appreciate your insights. I mean, one of my takeaways from this conversation, oh, I, have, I have so many, both from your essay, from this, and again, we'll send an email out to everyone with, the, with some of these takeaways as well as the link to your original essay, Graham. But um, you know, how serious of a topic this can be, how much time and effort and energy real experts apply to the process of interviewing reference checking like this, there's an advanced game here. You know, my friend Ramit sometimes says, sometimes says there's always another level. And when it comes to interviewing a reference check, there is, there is another level. So all of us, I think on this call, have an opportunity to up our game. Uh, and I think your demonstration of what world-class looks like. I also, one of my other takeaways that's sort of interesting is just the value of being quiet, of being focused, of trying to minimize your ego kind of in the interaction and being able to notice biases as they emerge um, to really understand what's being said. And crucially, as you said, the dog that isn't barking, what's not being said to hear the tone and the inflection that might indicate different levels of enthusiasm. So I think that's kind of a profound mindset shift. And I love throughout the conversation, Graham, that the times you referenced the mood, the vibe, the feeling, you know, and, and just how thus contextual this all is and how you might try different things depending on how you feel or how you feel they're feeling and, um, you know, we didn't get to the, the Tyler Callen meta question of how do you think this interview is going, which is a fun one to ask a candidate halfway through an interview, <laughs> have them pull out and start reflecting on the meta uh, experience. And so, but anyway, I just think that, 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 the, the, the focus on the vibe, in addition to the tactical questions, like we can all get better at just coming prepared with 10 questions to ask that are better than the generic questions, but just focusing on the vibe, uh, I think is a really important takeaway. I'll give you the last word if you want to uh, react to any of that. No, I, um, I, yeah, I enjoyed your, your hungry mind over the course of this interview. Thank you for engaging with the piece so deeply. It's fun. I can feel how interested in it you are. On behalf of all of us at Villagegram, thank you so much. And to everyone who's been part of this, thank you for joining. We'll see you online soon. Talk to everyone soon. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Village Global podcast. You can check us out online at villageglobal.vc. We'd love to hear from you, your feedback, your ideas, your inspirations. You can email us at hello at villageglobal.vc.